It's a joy to be here. Um, I was here a few months back on a really cold, I don't know if you remember that weekend, really cold weekend. Um, so it's a joy to be here. Uh, David, uh, I always call him David. I'll say Dave, sorry. Dave uh, called me a couple weeks ago. He said, hey, I'm going to be out uh, for this wedding for Compton. I was wondering if you could preach. And I said, absolutely. Where are you preaching in? Like, where, where are you at? He said, well, I've been preaching in 1 Corinthians 15. I said, this is great. I said, everybody loves 1 Corinthians 15. You have the whole part about the sting of death and where is your victory. The victory is in Jesus. And I was like, can I preach that? And he said, no, no, I'm, I'm preaching that. He said, he said, I'd like for you to pick up at the first of chapter 16. I was like, well, no one even like recognizes those first few verses because it's all about the collection. It's about money. So let me get this straight. The lead pastor is going to leave and you want... You want me to pinch hit on money? That's what you're asking me. Yep, that's what it is. So, but you know, I look back on on Dave's notes, and uh, and I am reminded. I just want to reflect on this for a minute because I think it leads really well into chapter 16, in verse 56. It says, "The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory." through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you remember, Pastor Dave said he wins over our weakness, he wins over our death, and he wins over sin. And his final statement is, we have victory in Jesus, so don't give up. Amen. I mean, that's kind of the close of chapter 15, almost. Because there's one more phrase, and it says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I just want you to just rest in those words. Be steadfast, unwavering, unflinching in your life. Be immovable, rooted in Christ, and always abounding in what? In the work of the Lord. That's the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And why can we do that? And know that our labor is not in vain. The labor of the gospel, the labor of a Christian, the labor of the pursuit of faith in Christ is not in vain. And there is a labor that we need to address that's also not in vain. That's the labor of generosity, the labor of giving. When he turns the page from 15 to 16, it is a bit of a shift though. It is this shift from this really high, lofty talks of the gospel, and then he gets down to this real-world practicality of giving. William Barclay, who lived in the first part of the 1900s, he was a great theologian, great minister in Scotland, taught at the University of Glasgow, and this is what he said about this particular shift from 15 to 16. He said the Apostle Paul has been walking in the loftiest realms of thought, and theology, and has been discussing the life of the world to come. But chapter 16 deals with the most practical things in the most practical way, and is concerned with the everyday life of this world and the administration of the church, namely the collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. My attempt today in this message is to highlight that collection what was going on 2,000 years ago, but to bring it to the 21st century um, and see how that, that, that moves us in our labor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where does this issue of giving come in? And so why don't you join me as I'm going to read uh, this passage. It's just four verses. We're going to focus on two of them, actually. And then David will pick up next week in verse 5 
It says this from the English Standard Version. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Well, when you see this passage, there's a few things said, but I think there's much to be made of. And I know Paul wanted to make much of this. He's been making much of various issues throughout the book of Corinthians. He talked about marriage. He talked about food that we can eat and not eat. We talked about spiritual gifts. And it seems to make sense that he would return back to a practical item, in this case, money, in this case, giving. So as I said, we're going to start with the church in Jerusalem, the church in Corinth, and and then we're going to go from there. So let me just tell you, there's going to be three basic things I want to say. And underneath that, we'll, we'll kind of expound on each of those. And the first of those three is that I believe, and I think Paul tells us, that there is a purpose in our giving. There's a purpose in our giving. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so also you are to do. Begs the question, what are we to do? Well, first one has to collect the saints, and it's for a purpose. And I would suggest to you it is for the, to bring relief to the saints. And the saints he's talking about here are the saints in Jerusalem. These are Jewish people who have started following the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and now they're being persecuted probably withheld certain benefits and finances that they once had because they're a follower of Jesus. So there are those who had despised and rejected Jesus, along with the Romans, and they saw him crucified on a cross. And then there are those Jews that came later under the teaching of Paul and Peter and others, and they begin to follow Jesus. And so Paul is going around, he kind of has his, his job to go around and bring in the collection of money so he can take some of it on a journey to Jerusalem and bring relief to the saints, to bring relief to his fellow Christians, his new Christians who are having a very difficult time. What a noble task he's got, what a noble thing he has to do. But I want you to understand that Paul was first a proclaimer of the gospel. He was a preacher, a church planter is also one who delivered this relief. I think we can be sure that throughout Christian history, that genuine preaching of the gospel, really in every age, has been accompanied by and must continue to be accompanied by the meeting of physical needs. You turn the pages of history back on any missionary and you're going to find they did both. They established hospitals and schools and, and shelters for people. They brought food and clothing. Even in modern day, my friends in Uganda, they started a church under a tree on the shores of Lake Victoria 30 years ago. And Pastor Peter gathered him together and he held out his Bible and began to preach Jesus. But immediately he turned to his left and his right and he and his wife Irene saw need. They saw people who needed relief, children that needed school, families that needed a place, a a way to work. They saw homes that needed to be built up or erected from what they could put together. Pastor Peter, 
has had a ministry at Africa Renewal that has gone together with the gospel proclamation and gospel relief for people in his community. And the truth is true still for us today. I mean, here we are in modern day Colleen, and there are people that need relief. Maybe not the kind of relief that the new Jewish Christians needed at the time, but there are people that need relief. You know them. Some of them are your neighbors, some of them are people you've known. I met a man in the first service that we began to talk, and just in almost normal conversation, he said these words. He goes, I was homeless for two years. So a man I'm talking to now has work, and he's fine, but homeless for two years. He needed relief from the saints. He needed to be cared for by the saints. And we do that here at Colleen whether it's a pregnancy center that women and men come into because of crisis, whether it's a shelter where people need a place to rest, whether it's a food bank, the list can go on of the things that we can provide. There's mentoring for at-risk kids. There's reading programs for those who are struggling in school. There's all sorts of ways we can bring relief to our community. I do want to advocate for one particular international organization that you might want to look into, and that is Children's Hunger Fund. Here is their mission statement. I think it captures this well. Our mission is to deliver hope to suffering children by equipping local churches for gospel-centered mercy ministry. I think that's a great tagline that any of us could bring into our church, that we have gospel-centered mercy ministry. And I think Paul's first statement here, he said, concerning the collection of the saints, I am directed to take that collection and bring relief to the saints in Jerusalem. That was part of his job. But I think another part of the job, because we said they go together, is to advance the gospel in the world. We already said the meeting of physical needs always accompanies the gospel. The gospel accompanies the meeting of needs. We have to put these together. And one of those needs that we have in ministering the gospel is we have to plant churches, which all have been a part of. We have to translate scripture. We need to send missionaries to unreached people groups, to closed nations. We have to send out pastors to learn in seminaries, to to become wise in their counsel. We have to build buildings so people can come in and sit like you are today and hear the proclamation of the word. I said that Pastor Peter started his ministry under a tree 30 years ago. He did, but he didn't stay under a tree because it took the collection from people And they built a small building and then another building. And by the way, just as a side note, Pastor Peter, there are 800 churches that can trace their roots back to Gaba Community Church that was started 30 years ago. 800 throughout Uganda will trace their roots. Second, third, fourth generation churches. They brought the gospel into the world to do that. They needed support to do that. In Romans 10 You might recognize this statement from verse 13. How are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And it costs money to send. We live in a world where everything costs money. It costs money to drive across town. It's getting more and more expensive to do that. It costs money to fly across the world. It costs money to buy Bibles, to put them in places where we need to bring the gospel. It costs money to feed those who are going to proclaim the gospel. And so we have to gather up the collection, not only for the saints who are in relief, that need relief, but also for the testimony of the gospel, for the spreading of the gospel. And that really is kind of the first verse there, kind of sums up the purpose in our giving. And I hope you'll be moved 
to give for both of those reasons. But I also want to talk about a pattern, excuse me, a pattern for our giving. A pattern for giving. Listen to what it says in verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. So, I'm going to skip this, so that there'll be no collecting when I come. You catch that? There's a pattern here. A pattern that's weekly and a pattern of putting something aside. To store something up. To set it aside so when it's needed, it's there. We say the first day of the week, you know, that's the Lord's day. This is the first day of the week. What happened at the, re- the, the, the resurrection of Christ is that a new day was anointed. Before then, it was the Passover. But Christ rose on the first day of the week, which is the Lord's day. That's why we go to church on Sunday. And we as Christians, followers of Christ, we don't go to church on Saturday. Although you could, nothing wrong with that. But we have a tradition that really built on the tradition of Scripture that we go on the first day of the week. So it kind of stands to reason that as we're bringing our giving to a church, we would bring it on that first day, on that Sunday, which is why for centuries we passed offering plates. Now, I don't know where you go to church uh, when, as you, when you were a child, but when you were young, they may have passed around little wood or silver plates around the church. Or if you're like me, I take my dad to an old traditional Methodist church periodically, take him from his assisted living home, and, uh, and take him to this church, and he loves it, and they pass these plates. Here's the irony of it. When they bring the plates up to the pastor for him to bless the offering, there is very little offering in the plates. Because no one has cash and no one has a check, right? So probably at this church, I'm guessing, like a lot of churches, 70, 80% of the giving is online. So it makes it a little difficult to kind of apply this really strategically of giving on the first day of the week. But I want to say to you is this, that you ought to have a regularity to your giving. Some sense of pattern of, of if it says first day of the week, maybe we can tra- it, trace it to our paycheck. So when we get a paycheck, we give. When we get a commission, we give right? And so there's this regularity, or maybe for you, it is a weekly type function. Maybe when you're balancing your checkbook, you look and, oh, we got to make sure we, we give on a regular basis. But he also said to put something aside, to take that collection and set it aside. Now, in this case, it's telling us that it's not spent all at once. Some of it's put aside for an emergency, for relief. Right now, if a crisis broke out and clean. I mean, a major crisis, a major storm, or something terrible happens here. The question you ought to ask, is this church prepared? Do they have something set aside for relief, for benevolence? And maybe not just in Killeen. How many churches right now are scrambling to send money to the Ukraine refugees that are in Poland and about half a dozen other countries around the world who are pushed out because of the war? Do they have the money to do that? Do they have something set aside? I want to just give you a little glimpse of what this looked like in you know, Deuteronomy 26. So old days gone by. This is old covenant teaching. But it's a great principle for us to think about. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose, that was probably where the Levitical priests were, to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who was in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket 
Set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Do you see the kind of the, the majesty of that? It must have been quite a, a thing to, to see people coming with these baskets of their first fruits, their first vegetables, maybe their first livestock, where they, they come in and they set it before the Lord. They, they, this is their collection, and they're putting it down for the relief of the saints. And the Levitical priests were the ones that would handle that. And first fruits, we'll find out later, corresponded with a tithe, corresponded with a percentage. And so they understood this first fruits. Going back to Uganda, it's very common in Uganda and other African nations to have a piggery business. And many nonprofits go out and they buy a number of pigs and they begin to give someone a pig so they can begin their piggery business. And they have a bunch of little pigs, you know, and it's not uncommon to have six, seven, eight, nine, ten pigs. And you might have heard this before. And they say to the family, hey, the first thing you need to do is take one of your pigs, like one out of 10 and give this back to the ministry so that then we can pass that pig on to something else. It's a basic principle that was started decades ago, maybe centuries ago. That simplicity of saying, if you have 10 little baby pigs, take one of those pigs and return it so that we might multiply it into the lives of others. It's a basic principle, a simple principle, the first fruits that come out. So, We give the first day of the week. We store it up so there's no collecting needed when I come. That's what he said. I don't want to come and have to say, look, there's a relief going on in Jerusalem. I need money now. He's like, we don't have it now. We've spent it all. We've used it all. Well, you should have stored some up, they said, to be ready for the crisis. So I want to suggest to you a simple way of giving, kind of a giving principle for you. And that is this. Follow the calendar or follow the money. Follow the calendar or just follow the money. What I mean is, if you get paid on a regular basis, let your giving corresponding with that regularity of giving. But if you don't get paid on a regular basis, following the counter maybe is more difficult. Maybe you follow the money. In other words, when you sell an asset, when you earn a commission, when you receive that bonus that's unexpected. So oftentimes we can look at our money and just let yourself follow that calendar or follow the money. And I would say at this church, you follow with your money not to offering plates because you don't see them, but you follow them online and you give online. You can give in the box in the back. I would encourage that. I encourage you to think about that costly. When, you, when you're thinking about your money, make sure generosity and giving is always part of that equation, which brings us to number three, which is plan for our giving. This is brief and it's very profound. He says, put something aside and store it up as you may prosper. Now that's the English standard version. Here's the NIV version that some of you have. Set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. It's saying there, there should be a sum of money that it corresponds to your prosperity, to the kind of income you receive. So let me tell you how the American Christians of the 21st century have interpreted this, what it's, what's panned out in the American church. According to recent surveys, and these have been consistent for quite a while, Christians in America are giving 2.5% of their prosperity, of their income. During the Great Depression, that same group of people, American Christians, it was 3.3%. I can't wrap my mind around that. My grandfather, if he was alive, he'd be 110. He lived in the Great Depression. He had three jobs, left his family to go work down the coast for a while. He did everything he could to make ends. He did everything he could to keep from standing in a food line. And I'm being told now, 
in one of the most prosperous ages of the American experience, great prosperity over the last 30 years. And I'm being told that my grandfather's generation, within those little white frame churches scattered around the city, was giving a higher percentage of their prosperity during the Great Depression than we are today. That, that, ought, that, that ought just land on us heavy. He goes on to say this, the average giving by adults who attend U.S. Protestant churches is about $17 a week. Now, I don't know about you, but if you had asked me to guess, I would have gotten that way wrong, wouldn't you? I mean, I would have given us the benefit of the doubt and said 100 I mean, 50, 150, I would have come up with a bigger number, $17. 30% of regular church attendees and evangelicals, they don't give money to the church. Hey, I, I'm not sharing this. There, there's no finger pointing at anybody, except maybe it's pointing at those who are a member of the body of the church, those who say, I'm a Christian actively involved in my local church. I think we have to look at this in two perspectives. One is, I'm going to suggest an old covenant perspective. Okay, let's start there. Because you, you can't really talk about giving in a church without talking about the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bible, you can look at Malachi chapter 3. This is an incredible conversation between the Lord and the church. All right? And so it's like a drama unfolding and a principle embedded in it. And this is what he says. For I, the Lord, do not change. That means he's immutable. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. He's rebuking the nation of Israel at that time. Return to me. I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? He says, you are robbing me. And we say, how have we robbed you, God? And this was his answer. In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Every fiber of my being wants to dismiss this is Old Covenant, Old Testament, irrelevant teaching that I, as a New Covenant Christian, do not have to deal with. The problem I have and have always had for my entire life is that the book of Luke and Hebrews and probably other places, the Word of God affirms the returning of the tithe, which translates to 10%, which is consistent with the first fruits of the crop. In other words, the, the Word of God, when you turn to Matthew, it in no way ever abolishes the tithe. In fact, you, you might say it affirms it and maybe even builds on top of it. So I'm just going to suggest that we can have a plan of giving that is according to the covenant tithe. You can do that. You, you, in fact, I know people that do it. I know people that live their life religiously, legalistically in some sense, Making sure it's down to the penny, you know, it's 10% of gross net, whatever you want to, whatever, whatever you want to figure that one out. And when I was a pastor every now and then, I'd see just checks or numbers that, that came through, and, and you would see the most unusual amounts, you know, like $111.26. Like, man, this person is serious. I mean, that, there's no way that wasn't 10% of a number, right? Had to be, because uh, that's what they got paid, 10%. 
There's 10 times more than that. So anyway, you can go this route. And, and I think tithing or the very principle of generosity has more to do with faith than it does to do with our income or budgeting or Malachi. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm convinced that every talk we can give about giving and generosity and call it tithing or collection or contribution, whatever it is, all that has far more to do with the depth of our faith and love for God than it has to do with how much money we make, what's our budget at home, or what does Malachi say? I think it has to do with faith. In the book, in uh, Randy Alcorn's famous book on money, if you haven't read it, pick up Randy Alcorn's book on money, written a long time ago, but it's really good. He says this, in the scriptures, as we move from Old Covenant, that's Old Testament, to the New Covenant, through Christ, that's New Testament, God never lowered the bar. He always raised it. But he also empowers us by his grace to jump higher than the law demanded. Christ systematically addressed such issues as murder, adultery, and made it clear that his standards were much higher than those of the Pharisees. If he set a bar of giving to an old covenant church, to Pharisees who who are legalists, who haven't tasted of the goodness of the grace of God through Jesus Christ, if he set a bar of 10%, it's hard to imagine that when he brings everything new in Christ, that he would tell us to try to sneak under the bar instead of jumping above the bar. Because it does it in every other way. Everything. Jesus is saying, I'm making all things new. In Romans, he said, we're buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too must do what? Walk in newness of life. Let me just give you a picture of some of the newness of how he, how he moves things beyond an old covenant teaching. The old covenant says, don't murder. The new covenant in Christ says, if you hate your brother, it's murder. The old covenant says, don't commit adultery. Christ said, if you look on somebody lustfully, it's adultery. In the Old Testament, we're commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. But as Christ sat with his disciples right before his death and resurrection, he washed his feet and then he looked at them and he says, I'm going to give you a new commandment to replace the old commandment of just loving like you want your neighbor to love you. I have a new commandment. I want you to love people as I'm loving you. He's doing that while he's washing their feet days, day or two, before, out of love, he's going to die for their sins. He took dirty, unfiltered water and turned it into fine wine. He didn't just raise the dead, heal the leper, or give sight to the blind. He did that, and he gave them new life in Christ. The sacrifice of a lamb to atone for sins in the Old Testament was replaced with the sacrifice of Christ's perfect life to the world. Do you know that? And, and that gospel is a, a progressive, earth-shattering gospel. He was coming into the world and telling people, I'm going to lay down my life, I'm going to atone for sins, but not just for the Jews, but for the Gentile. And not just for the free, but for the slave. And not just for men, but for women. And not just for the noble, but the peasants. It broke down every wall of bigotry and racism and tribalism in the world. Because Christ came together and said, I'm coming here to die for anyone who calls upon my name. He says in Galatians 3.27, For as many as you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ. And when it comes to money, he continued on this trajectory. 
He was making it all things new. He was having us rethink the way we think about money, not as some legalistic thing that I must do this or I'm not gonna or I'm gonna be cursed. To I, mean, I have freedom to give as much as I want. And there's blessing. Do you remember the story of the woman going into church? The little widow woman. She finds a little coin and she drops it in. Sometimes that story is not told in its fullness. We miss a little line in it. Here's what it says in the book of Mark. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, out of their excess. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So everybody, just do me a favor. Do, do, do the math in your head. Just real quick. Do the math in your head. It is May 1st. Almost May. Is it May 1st today? May. May 1st. Do the math. What do you need to live on for the next 30 days? What do you need? Numbers are coming to your head. Do you need 2,000? you need 2,500? you need 4,000? Can you give me eight? Give me two? <laughs> I mean, what do you need, right? Can you imagine if you just took it all out of your pocket this morning and said, I'm, I'm giving away everything I had to live on. Oh, I also have money saved up in a savings account. I'll give that too. Put it over there. Oh, I'll turn over my retirement account to a charity, to a church, or to someone in need. That's what she did. And she did it next to people who were dressed nicer, had nicer donkeys, better sandals, and they gave a penance to God. They gave a, a portion. They gave not out of their income. They gave out of their abundance. They met all the needs, all the wants they could ever have at that moment in life, and then they had some left over, so they gave some to the church. That's how dramatic he's trying to make this chasm between joyful giving and those who just give a little out of their prosperity. And he had a word to these people. In 1 Timothy, the Bible says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. By the way, he doesn't say there aren't going to be rich people. There are. He says, don't let the rich people be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of their riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. The rich are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you hear this? Second Corinthians, Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. Let me suggest to you that a cheerful giver gives first and gives more. The widow woman gave first. I bet she was first in line. And she gave more. And you say, no, no, she didn't give more. With the money they gave, they were able to build a new church at that time. With the money they gave, the, the, the preacher of the church was able to, to take care of herself. With the money, I say, no. She gave more because she gave it all. And they gave some. We live in a world today where we're praised for more. We're praised for the dollar amount, right? And we don't attach it to the person. And we shouldn't be granular like that and think that way. But that's what our minds do. Oh, wow, that's a big gift. You know, if I showed up today and gave a $25,000 gift to this church, you'd give me an applause. Jay paid off this. He bought us a new camera. He did that, right? I may be giving it out of a vast amount of wealth, right? But what if I told you it was everything that I had? It's different, right? It's different, different disposition of the heart. Same money, different disposition of the heart. 
Randy Alcorn closed his comments with this. It was obvious from the beginning that being under grace didn't mean that New Testament Christians would give less than their Old Testament brethren. On the contrary, it meant they would give more. Being under grace does not mean living by lower standards than the law. So here's another plan for our giving. How about we give according to new covenant, joyful, limitless giving? Wouldn't it be beautiful? According to new covenant, joyful, limitless giving. I just want to press pause here for a second. Because we've used these words like purpose, pattern, and plan. And I'm not suggesting that he's writing a prescription for us, right? I'm not suggesting that. But I think he, he's saying to us that God desires more, not less generosity. And so you have to ask the question, what's holding us back? What is keeping us? I'm going to lose that, use that term very broad. Us at a 2.5% level of generosity. What, why is that? I mean, put that own kind of number in your head. You go, okay, I made $50,000 last year. Two. Do the math. Where were you? You're not going to tell anybody. But you need to deal with God and say, God, why, why am I stuck here? And why is the American church not more generous than the old covenant church was? Or our forefathers during the Great Depression? We should be thinking about that. I think there's a number of reasons. You can add up the seven deadly sins. You may know what those are. They've been used for years. Uh, pride, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth or laziness. But number seven is greed. And let me suggest this. Greed is like gravity. Greed is like gravity. It's always pulling us down from biblical commands and aspirations for joyful generosity. I aspire to give joyfully, but greed keeps pulling me down. I heard a comedian say one time that flying is a war against gravity. (laughs) Flying is a war against gravity, and it is. And if that's true, then generosity is a war against greed. What I mean is you want to fight greed, you lean into generosity. And greed is not just for the billionaires. Let's just make that clear. It's easy to sit back at home and flip through and, and see, oh, what's that documentary about that American greed? And we see the faces of these, you know, men and women who are just full of greed, you know, and they're all billionaires. And, and we just kind of puff up and go, I would not be like that. You know, I'd give all my money away. You know, we say all those things, right? Uh, when I, at the first service, I, I, I paused here because whenever you talk about a TV show on current times, you always feel like you need to say, now, I don't watch that. You understand? Like, whenever anybody leaves a reference from a TV, I don't really watch it. You know? But I can say with confidence, I have never seen an episode of American Greed. It may be complete debauchery. Um, but I know the titles. And there's two titles for the show. American Greed, colon, Scams, Scoundrels, and Scandals. I don't want to be one of those. American Greed, colon, Scams, Schemes, and Broken Dreams. Look, I don't think any of you are going to make the headlines of American Greed this week on whatever network it's on. But we all have to deal with some some residue of greed that comes from the fall of man. And it is our love of money, our need for validation, our need for comfort, for better reputation, to feel some want or need in our life. You just fill in the blank. What is it? There was a show one time where a, a, a wife gave her husband a gift on their anniversary. It was a gift card to a hardware store. And she goes, well, honey, I hope you like it. She goes, I just couldn't think of anything you wanted. And he goes, can't think of anything you want. I want. I, I have a list running in my head all the time of everything that I want. He knew he had all these wants. And you know right now what are all the wants. And we have to battle against that because we don't want to be the scribes and Pharisees who Jesus called a hypocrite. He says, you clean the outside of the cup. 
and inside there's greed and indulgence. I, I mean, my outside of my cup is clean in front of you. It's a clean shirt, clean clothes. I shaved, I washed my hair. I'm a clean cup. But what you don't know, and it's between me and God at this point, is is there greed and indulgence in my heart? And if there is, I need to repent of that and ask God to forgive me of that and turn from greed to generosity. Now, I, I, I think... All these commands, this simplicity of these commands are important. And, and we could sit here and we could talk all about the purpose and the plans and the patterns of our giving, but I will tell you, they may work if you build them into a system, but there's a good chance you're going to become the legalist we don't want you to become. There's a good chance you might even hit the heights of 10% plus and still have greed in your heart and be legalistic. But I, I, would, I would say that if we don't marry up the gospel of Jesus Christ with our generosity, that's what will happen. So in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8, I want you, I want you to turn here. because If you don't remember any passage today, if you have your Bible or a phone, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. He's gone through the practicalities. In fact, this whole passage is on giving, and we'll close with another part of it. He says this, and starting in verse 8, I say this is not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Though Christ was rich, sitting on the throne of heaven, he became poor and impoverished, literally becoming a human subject to all the things humans face, sicknesses and disease and heartaches and sorrows and, and grief. And in his case, rejection, persecution, and eventually death on the cross. And he did all that so that greedy sinners like me can become rich in mercy, rich in heavenly inheritance, rich in God's favor, rich in spiritual gifts, rich in his promises, and yes, rich in generosity. That's, he came to liberate us from so much and it'd be, it would be just a mistake for us to stop short and not realize that in his richness, he became then poor so that we may become rich so that we understand the richness of what it means to give generously. Let's not oversee that. Let's not miss that in our Christian life. I don't, if you're still on 2 Corinthians 8, just look back a couple of verses in 2 Corinthians 8, it, right at the beginning. And, and this is what when he's talking before the passage I read, he says, we want you to know, brothers, in verse 1, about the grace of God that has been given among you by the churches of Macedonia. Get this. For in a severe test of affliction, Great Depression, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. They did it. Because they want to. They did it because they love Jesus. They did it because they wanted to bless people. They did it because they wanted to, to help those who are under severe poverty in Jerusalem. They did it regardless of their income, regardless of their house, regardless, they wanted to overflow in generosity. 
But as our hearts grow in affections to Christ, I want you to know this, as your hearts do that, our affections and devotion to money gets redirected. It starts to get redirected. Here's a simple sense that you might just take away today. I think sums up this idea of greed and, and generosity. Says the gospel is an antidote to greed. I believe that. And the stimulus for joyful labor and giving. I put that second word in on purpose. Because we've heard a lot about stimulus checks. This isn't a political statement. It's just been in the news and in our bank accounts. Most everybody here got some sort of stimulus check over the last two years. But here's the thing. It, as soon as it went in our bank accounts, it went out. It d- didn't really do anything. It didn't really change our, and make us joyful labors in giving. That's what the gospel does. It is clearly the antidote to the greed in our heart because it brings about repentance. And then it's a stimulus for joy and giving when we see our Savior who became poor while he was rich so that we may become rich and give to the poor. I hope today you leave with no hint of legalism, no hint of pressure to do something for any ministry in the world out of some sense of duty-bound legalism. I hope you leave today loving Jesus more so that you might give more to relieve the saints, to testify to the gospel, to spread his fame throughout the world. I think that's the hope of this church. I want to be the hope of mine, and I want to be the generation, by the way, that turns the tide, that that 2.5% grows, not to get to old covenant levels, but get to levels that are more akin to New Testament generosity and giving. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. Lord, I I come in here not knowing anything about the giving patterns of these people. I don't know anything about the giving of this church. I know they give away, I think, actually, I think the church tithes 10%. The church is already modeling that. They're tithing. You should remember that as I pray this. Lord, thank you that the elders of this church are leading the way in generosity and giving, looking for new ways to give. And Lord, I pray that we as individuals would model that, that we would do that as well. And that we would understand, Lord God, I pray everyone here understands that giving by faith is a disconnect from giving according to our budgets and our income. We give out of a love for Jesus and a generosity for others, and we trust that you'll You'll help us then be able to work through the other issues. Give us faith to believe in that, Lord Jesus. Give us faith of the Macedonia church. We love you, Father. In your name, amen.